um, this is the time when um, one of us gives the Dhamma talk. I know it can be a little confusing if you start attuning to the schedule. Um, but that's what's happening now for about the next hour. So ready yourself. Um, it is my wish for tonight to uh, do some justice to the teachings of mindfulness. The uh, part of the purpose of this retreat is to contextualize the term of mindfulness, uh, sati, in a Buddhist understanding or an understanding as it comes down to us from early Buddhism. Um, the You as native English speakers are fortunate to have, uh, I think, a very fortuitous translation with the term mindfulness of this Buddhist concept called sati. Uh, you may or may not know that this word mindfulness is more or less artificially coined in the late 19th century by a Welsh scholar who bored civil servant out in Sri Lanka who had to cope with the property laws. Um, and uh, that got him into connecting to monasteries because monasteries under the British Empire in Sri Lanka or then Ceylon um, were actually landowners. They weren't intended to be landowners, but by that time they had become landowners in part through uh, the efforts of the British who couldn't cope with the concept of land being owned by a monastic community of the present and of the future uh, with that notion was legally not tenable. So the British attributed the land of the monasteries to the abbot of the monastery, which uh, immediately led to nepotism because monks couldn't have kids, but at least they could bequeath their property to uh, distant family members. Anyway, Long footnote, uh, Rhys Davis got to uh, study the law, property laws with monastics in Sri Lanka and thereby discovered the discourses of the Buddha and was very delighted. He learned some Pali and uh, was raving, writing letters back home saying what he had discovered in these texts would be no less fascinating than platonic dialogues. So this is one of the beginnings of Pali scholarship a bored civil servant, a lawyer uh, who turns linguist and who uh, had the social organizational skill to then organize that uh, a hitherto unknown Middle Indo-Aryan dialect was established as part of Indological studies in uh, the UK. And he continued to translate with much dedication and continue to lecture, even in the States here, he, early part of the 20th century, he is having a hold. He broke into the North American lecturing circle and uh, lectured Americans about Buddhism. He is the one who coined that term mindfulness. The word existed in English language until then, but it had practically no meaning. I've managed to trace it down in some French-English dictionary where Mindfulness uh, was the French tr the, the translation for French pensée. Um, the adjective mindful is very well known. It's in the King James Bible, as many of you will know. But the noun mindfulness practically didn't exist. We can easily establish now with the help of 
Google's Ngram viewer, where you can scan across the corpus of 20 million books or so. And you can actually identify that the term barely existed before that. So I think Rhys Davies coined that term in analogy to the adjective mindful. So be, say in the, in the sense of being mindful of the needs of others, prudence, circumspection, care. And he used that term mindfulness to translate this Buddhist psychological function called sati. Yeah. So mindfulness is right from the beginning uh, in its career in the English language connected with the Buddhist term of sati. That's the sati of satipatthana, uh, Chris mentioned today, and the sati of anapanasati, of mindfulness of breathing. Um, so, Mindfulness as the full presence of mind is a, a lovely notion. Uh, when we're trying to find out what role this mindfulness takes in Buddhist teaching, it becomes quickly obvious that mindfulness is a team player. Buddhist psychology understands mindfulness to be indispensable, but on its own, not terribly powerful. It is situated squarely in a project that Buddhist teaching calls mind development, bhavana, or maybe more beautifully, bringing into being. Yeah? That's what Buddhists call mind training, mind development. This mind training has many facets. One of them is about body, our relationship to the physical world. One of them is about social relations, our relationship to the human world and maybe the world of animals. Um, it is about training the mind in terms of stillness, samatha aspect, and in terms of the uh, universal forms of empathy, the Brahma-Vihara, which are so crucial in Buddhist teaching and which uh, have so much to offer uh, to Western society because they, in some way, um, would be very profoundly useful and are profoundly transformative when we relate with mindfulness infused with empathy, forms of empathy, friendliness, compassion, joyousness, and equanimity. So we have three segments of this big project of mind cultivation. Body, relationship to the physical world, finally our planet, Sila, relationship to the social world, everything to do with others, the other, um, stilling the mind and infusing it with the paradigms of empathy, and finally, developing forms of wisdom, wisdom and understanding that is transformative and clears the mind. Yeah. Buddhist definition of wisdom is always a wisdom that is helpful to make us happier and that clears the things that trouble the mind. Usually one of the uh, sub-forms of greed, hatred or delusion. Yeah. So mindfulness has a role to play in this mind training. Yeah. It's an indispensable quality that has a role to play in the development of wisdom, in the de development of ethics, in the development of um, stillness, and in the development of empathy. So it's a fairly central world. It's a word uh, and a notion of a mind function that, uh, if you want a charts of Buddhist 
qualities. Mindfulness is probably the word that appears in most of the charts. Yeah? Uh, early Buddhist uh, teachings are uh, go back to an oral tradition, and as in any oral tradition, you have lots of lists, because that's the way to remember things. You have lists. If you don't have contents pages, glossary indices, if you can't just turn back and reread page 15 again after you're on page 271, you need to learn things by heart. So any oral tradition, not just Buddhist traditions, but any oral tradition has lots of lists and repeats things. It has stock phrases. You know, biblical scholars would call that pericopes, things that return in more or less uh, verbatim ways in many text passages. So sati, mindfulness, turns up in a whole number of uh, contexts. It's one of the awakening factors, it's one of the indriyas, the uh, spiritual faculties, it's one of the members of the Eightfold Path, it uh, is many, many times referenced. Uh, it has lots of teachings given on its uh, development or on its function, Sometimes it appears in negative ways. When there is no sati, we are rated to be superficial, or we're rated to be forgetful, or we're rated to be unaware. Uh, many, th many things um, testify to the value of such sati. Now, rather than dragging you through a long list of possible definitions, and you know, Buddhists have not always been in one mind. Oh, it is. Buddhist teachings have taken many, many different tacks, and over the centuries, the Buddhist traditions themselves have uh, debated on the nature of mindfulness in quite controversial ways. So, uh, depending on what time you look for this, it doesn't always exactly mean the same thing. But the centrality of that teaching is huge. Uh, there is a huge agreement across Buddhist traditions uh, about the centrality of this mind function. Now we could try to look for a definition of this mind function, but definitions are tricky and as will become very quickly obvious, one of the features of mindfulness is that it is rather refractory to definitions. You know? If you want to define things, you need to take them out of their context in some way, to isolate them. You want to address their singularity in some ways, and precisely that uh, sati is somewhat refractory to. It's in the nature of mindfulness, according to early Buddhist understanding, that you cannot take it out of its context without completely depleting its power. Yeah. That is a challenge in itself. Maybe more useful would be to look at some of the imagery and the similes with which early Buddhist teachings speak when they refer to this quality of mind. As you know, definitions hinge on a lot of cognitive gymnastics. Um, you need to know something about the context before a definition starts to make sense. So images and similes seem to travel more easily. You have to understand that the, the source of these texts is quite a long time ago. These texts, they do not speak to us in the language of Jack Kornfield or Thich Nhat Hanh or John Kabat-Zinn. These are texts that are two and a half millennia old. To understand, to work, 
tease out meaning from these texts is a type of work that uh, is beyond bedtime reading you know, for most people. I don't know what your bedtime reading is, but it's beyond my bedtime reading. Yeah? There may be comparisons. Think of other texts coming from this time. Yeah. Greek comedies. Yeah. Maybe we have Greek scholars in here, who knows? Or people who are fond of um, Aristophanes. Um, if you read Aristophanes or try to play him, uh, enact him, bring him on stage, you, you're having big problems because the, the guy is about as old as the text from Buddhist teachings and his, his jokes are no longer funny. Yeah? If you want to make his jokes funny, you have to really sit down and rewrite the stuff because what was funny then, all the wit, all the sarcasm, all the ingenuity with which he portrayed and caricatured his contemporary um, Athens society of the 4th century BC, all this is lost on you if you grow up in Brooklyn, unless you have had a strong penchant from fairly early on for Attic comedy or so, which is probably unlikely. So this is the distance culturally and time-wise where these teachings come from us. But it is maybe worth considering them, even if you don't want to become a Buddhist or if you think Buddhists are to be uh, taken with a pinch of salt, if you're into mindfulness, it is probably worth looking or thinking or pondering some of what a tradition has to say that has actually developed a whole psychology on the basis of contemplative experience. Unlike Western psychology, uh, Buddhist psychology has grown out of contemplative introspective experience. The very languaging, the very notion of mind is uh, contingent on the fact that these people were introspectives. It is introspective exercises that have given Buddhist psychology its name. Yeah. So, uh, whether you're interested in Buddhists or in Buddhism or in becoming a Buddhist is completely beside the matter. But if you, there are people who for two and a half millennia have been dealing with a particular type of practice and experiential procedures uh, that hinge on mindfulness and you're into mindfulness, then it's probably worth looking at what these guys have come up with in those, t in, in those two and a half millennia. Yeah. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why it makes sense uh, to look at some of the teachings and the, basically the treasure troughs of a contemplative tradition, even from a non-religious point of view. So if we look at some of the images in which sati is spoken of in early Buddhist teachings, it's quite fascinating. So we have a number of images. A very simple and famous one is about body awareness. So the image is a man has to carry a bowl of oil on his head, brimful, and he has to walk across a crowd to, who has assembled to watch the, the bell of the country sing and dance. Uh, you have to assume that this is a crowd not terribly mindful of our man with the ball of, head, uh, of oil on his head. And to make matters worse, there's another man behind him with a, with a sword drawn, threatening to lop off his head at the first drop of oil shed. And then the question is, would this person 
risking his life with the slightest uh, unaware body movement, would this person be lacking in bodily awareness, in sati for the body? And um, the story is, um, is a, is a nar narrative frame which uh, the Buddha speaks to his monks and uh, they uh, duly answer him, no, no, this person would be highly mindful. You know. From a psychologist's point of view, we would say this person is likely to be in a state of utter hypervigilance, probably, uh, to rescue his life. So one aspect of body awareness is with this rather dramatic and somewhat almost punitive image, um, I think, caught. It's a state of heightened presence, not just for what I feel, but actually also uh, my motor movements, uh, uh, what I anticipate happening to me. Yeah, Some of the uh, cheering crowd may, not, may be more attentive to the bell of the country rather than to me. And me risking my life, I have to anticipate this. So I think a very stark image. Um, it's not something we want to replicate here. We don't uh, release cobras or walk up and down with swords drawn to when you start to give off the first sign of a slight nod. Um, although some Buddhist traditions have made much of this, some of the Japanese tradition you may notice of uh, the Staff of Awakening, the Zen tradition where I began with, is uh, an instrument that sometimes descends on you if you're found wanting in wakefulness. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, that staff usually hits your shihatsu points up here in your shoulder and uh, wakefulness comes easy after you've been hit with one of these. This is not something we practice or we even recommend, but it is uh, clearly... Uh, there is a lineage there. It's clearly discernible lineage, I think, between this image and uh, somewhat martial uh, take on mindfulness. We have other images, maybe more uh, peaceful images of uh, mindfulness. One image speaks of mindfulness in its role of stability. I guess an often underestimated aspect of mindfulness is that it is the raw material for mental stability, for calm what Buddhists call samadhi, not to be mistaken with concentration. Concentration is not samadhi. It has very little to do with samadhi. Concentration, in my books, is, an art, is a kind of effortful, continued, uh, strenuous type of attention. It's not even proper mindfulness. It's a strained type of attention that can only be very short-lived, uh, generally induces migraine, and uh, you know, pain, pain in the neck. The calm Buddhist teachings speak of is not something that can be attained by straining attention. It is a calm that is instilled in the mind because the mind likes to be coalesce. It likes to unify. So the proper word for deeper stillness for samadhi, samadhi is the experience, samatha is the practice that leads to this experience, is unification. A unification that cannot be willed, but that can be prepared. You can do things that help the mind more likely to become unified, to become still and experience deep, deepening states of tranquility and calm. Sati, mindfulness, is the raw material for this deepening stillness. That's one powerful example. So the image that goes with this is we have a post, 
Sati is likened to a strong, firmly implanted post. And on that post you have a number of ropes. And these ropes are tied to animals. Uh, one of these animals is a crocodile, one of them is a snake, one of them is a jackal, a dog, a bird, a monkey. And these animals represent our senses. Five outer senses, and in Buddhist psychology the mind, amongst other things, also is a sense organ. Not just a sense organ, but also a sense organ. So there's nothing inherently transcendent in thought, unlike in some of the branches of Western philosophy where thought at least uh, has a transcendent property. In Buddhist psychology, thought is a sensual experience as tasting or as seeing or as hearing. Your relationship to thought objects, concepts, images, anything conceptualized is essentially the same relationship as that of your tongue to a taste or of your ear to a sound. Yeah? So we have six senses. These six senses are these six animals and these animals as you can imagine they don't like to be tied to that post. They want to go back the crocodile into the water, the jackal onto the jarnel ground, the dog into the village, the bird into the air, the snake wants to disappear in an anthill. Yeah? So the post holds these animals back, and uh, that post is sati. Because that post does not botch, is stable, the animals become gradually more quiet. They stop pulling, they stop jumping up and down, they stop trying to get away. And increasingly they become peaceful. And sati is likened with the capacity of mind that begins initially by restraining the senses, and finally, these senses become calm and peaceful and stop dragging us into differing directions. The notion of sense and sense organ is an interesting one. Maybe we'll speak about this on another evening. But it is a, a power that makes us do things that we don't necessarily want to do. Yeah. We all experience sensitivity and these senses make us jump. Somebody bangs the door, we jump. Somebody walks in front of our nose with a strong perfume. And something in us either delights or feels insulted. You know? Somebody wears the wrong kind of socks and we feel uh, this is really a bad fashion statement or we start fantasizing or, you know, or en envying or feeling all kinds of things get going. So we are susceptible, we are sensitive and through this sensitivity we are susceptible to all kinds of impingement. And that is something that takes the mind away from stillness. So sati is the post that helps the mind to have the necessary stability. A very powerful image is the image of a surgeon or a wound surgeon who uh, gets delivered a patient who has an arrow wound. The arrow shaft is broken off. So we, there is our surgeon with a man who's, who uh, has an arrow head stuck somewhere in his flesh and he doesn't see that arrowhead. So the surgeon uses an instrument to probe into the wound. He uses a probe to touch into the wound to get an idea how deep that arrowhead is buried, how, um, what shape it is, what size it is, so that he can then um, minimally invasively uh, open the wound and remove that arrowhead. Sati is likened to that probe. Sati is uh, likened to that which makes us capable of 
getting in touch with what we don't yet see, yeah, what is hidden to the eye. And sati, in this painful image, is that which takes us beyond what we can already know. Yeah. Clearly in the role of an examining, investigative, fathoming type of function. So already we have very different function. One of them is body awareness, height and vigilance. One of them is stability. And now suddenly sati is like into examining, probing into, investigating. There are more images. There's a few images that speak of sati and the sort of panoramic, open, spacious awareness. Man climbing on top of his house and overlooking the land. Or another man sitting on the bench of his ox cart and overlooking his animals, his draft animals, the road, his cartload, and holding the reins. So sati is likened to that panoramic overview, which is probably one of the most easiest recognizable images for sati. But then there are other images. Sati is described with a, a cowherd boy who has to look after his cows. And these cows, the two takes, take one shows these cows while the fruit in the field nearby is ripe. And the cows want to run into the ripe field and thereby eat some of the fruit and trample the rest of the field, which the boy has to avoid. Um, and to do so, he has a stick. He jumps up and down, he screams, he shakes his arms, and he runs around to keep these cows at all cost out of the field. This practice is called protection. It's not called mindfulness, it's called protection. Um, then we have another take. The field is harvested. The cows don't really run anywhere. They just stand, and our cowherd boy just lies in the shadow, uh, lifts his head occasionally and sees, ah, oh, my cows are still there, nothing is happening, I don't really need to do anything. And this practice is called establishing mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Very inviting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, maybe interesting not to forget that um, the first activity, yeah, shaking your hands and screaming and using the stick and jumping up and down, is also deemed the necessary practice. Although it is not called mindfulness, it is still deemed necessary. So if your cows are running around madly, it may be necessary that your lofty definitions of mindfulness need to be parked for a moment and you need to make sure that your cows don't run away yeah, by whatever means it takes to keep them from running away. We have images of sati, uh, very interesting image uh, as a gatekeeper on, in two images, one uh, image speaks of Sati as the gatekeeper at the gate, <coughs> awaiting two messengers coming from a distant place. And the gatekeeper awaits them so that when they arrive, tired and uh, not familiar with the town, that he can take them on the straightest and most direct way to the governor of the city. Sati has the job of efficiency, of economy, and making things go unhindered. Yeah. Very interesting image of Sati. So a gatekeeper that awaits the messengers, they, by the way they're called uh, Samatha and Vipassana, and takes these, gate, takes these messengers to the governor of the city, to the citta. Then we have another image of a gatekeeper, somewhat different um, spin. This time the gatekeeper looks closely at all the people wanting to enter the city. And those he knows 
he lets in. And those he doesn't know, he actually scrutinizes and questions what their business is in town. Some of them he lets in and some of them he doesn't let in. That's an interesting statement, isn't it, for Sati? It sounds a bit judgmental for something that is supposed to be non-judgmental. Uh, sati is likened here to a quality of awareness that is capable of protecting the heart, that's the city, from influences that are, that are detrimental to that heart. So Sati has a clearly protective function in this image. Then we have some images where sati is likened to salt when it comes to foods, the preparation of food. So as salt is said to bring out the flavor of all foods, so sati brings out the qualities of the mind, uh, that the, the qualities of what the mind experiences. Yeah? So an amplifier of experience, very interesting. Something that brings to awareness what we actually experience. Then there is a, a very interesting image where sati is likened um, to a plow and to a goad. So we have a plowman who, you have to imagine this to be a little simpler than this will be the case here, um, two oxen pulling a very simple wooden contraption, maybe sheathed with a little bit of metal at the point where it goes into the earth. Uh, if you go to Bihar today, you will probably still see such things. Uh, 20 years ago when I was there, I, I still saw th such things. This is not a very complicated structure. So you have your two draft animals yoked together. They plod along and you're tilling a furrow behind them. And your job is to make sure that you have enough weight on that plow. This is called a tuned application enough weight on that plow so that it digs deep enough to really make a nice furrow. If you do it too much it gets stuck and will probably be torn apart by your oxen. If you don't press it down enough it will only scratch the surface and not properly break the earth. So we are told that sati is like that plow and turns the earth so that that which was not visible becomes obvious. Yeah. The commentary then uh, glosses that this means the, the three hallmarks of existence, impermanence, conditionality, impersonality, will become obvious in all things experienced. Um, the second instrument is the goat, which you keep your oxen straight, because oxen not necessarily uh, favor to be uh, straight. They just uh, do what they like to do. And if you want your furrow to be a straight furrow, you need some clear direction. Yeah. So the double task of sati, of mindfulness, to work with a tuned application, yeah, so to get the weight right, which you place with your feet and your body's weight on that plow, and to make sure that there is a clear direction for your two draft animals. That's an interesting image. A tuned effort and clear direction. Let me see. One image speaks of what happens when you throw a pumpkin into water. Uh, the pumpkin floats away, the go or the gourd, as the uh, 
Indian pumpkins are a bit smaller or so. Um, so you have this, imagine there's a little rivulet and this uh, gourd is thrown in and there's a, a drift and the gourd just floats away and sati is described to be not like a gourd you throw into water but to actually enter rather than floating away it is described to enter the object object it associates with so the, the, so the property of not floating away and uh, you know, as meditators, you will know there's plenty of drift usually in a human mind on which one can easily float away, uh, float away for quite long times at a time. Sometimes it floats away, uh, you know, a few, a few breaths, and sometimes it floats away a long time, and sometimes just next moment of consciousness is a bell that is being rung. Or, you know. So we have quite a number of images here. We have Sati in this role as a protector, one gatekeeper, Sati in the role of a panoramic, spacious openness, as in the in the cowherd. We have Sati in the role of um, efficiency and economy in the image of the second gatekeeper. We have Sati in the image of this the post planted in the ground as a uh, symbol of stability. We have Sati in the wound surgeon's uh, a simile where it is likened to the power of investigation, examination, fathoming. We have Sati as not floating away. We have Sati as uh, the man who climbs on his tower. Yeah, about. Huh? So, how do we f understand this function of mind? There is no psychological notion of a mind function that covers all these things, isn't it? It's very obvious. Yeah. And yet, uh, the contemplative tradition has obviously uh, found a coherence in these image, images to identify a function of minds that we are all have experiential knowledge of, that exists, that we can practice. We all know how that feels. Yeah. And the Buddha, being a pr spiritual pragmatist, realized that the major evil that assails the human mind and is uh, the major source of suffering is not just desire and hatred, but it is the uh, empirical wrong understanding that underpins our willingness to believe that if we follow desire and if we follow aversion, that our chances to happiness are good. Yeah? That false understanding he deemed to be uh, the major culprit in the big uh, pandemonium of uh, Buddhist demonology, if you so want. Yeah? So the really bad thing is only under the sway of ignorance do we actually come to the conclusion that greed takes me to happiness if I fulfill that greed, or that anger, when I enact that anger, can make me happy. Yeah? Only under the sway of ignorance. So rather than preaching uh, we, we, sh we shouldn't be greedy and we shouldn't be hateful. He has also preached that. He has actually taken another tack and suggested that addressing the major evil of ignorance, you need practical tools. And one of these practical tools is called the training of first attention and then mindfulness. Yeah. And this practical training of mindfulness, he has given much, much uh, time. He has um, 
given many many teachings the two the famous teachings are in the Pali is three versions of the Satipatthana text the uh, discourse on the establishing of mindfulness uh, these three versions are not quite the same but uh, they are largely the same then we have many many other texts speaking about these uh, this pattern what he calls the Satipatthana teachings we have some of the most famous and maybe some of the most beautiful of these teachings are actually not in the Satipatthana Sutta uh, and have preoccupied Buddhist traditions for about 800 years. You, know, if you can find them in Sanskrit translations, you can find them in Chinese translations, you find them anthologized. For the first 800 years of Buddhist teaching, these Satipatthana teachings have been the practical instruction to meditate. So. Let's look at that scaffolding very briefly. These Satipatthanas are something... Um, think of them as four channels. Think of them as something that happens in your experience all the time. Any moment of your experience um, has the four dimensions that are outlined in the teachings of Satipatthana. They are quickly named. Uh, the first channel has to do with body. It's called Kayanupasana, technically the contemplation of body, body phenomena. The second one uh, has as the theme the contemplation of hedonic tone. This is about pleasure and displeasure. It's sometimes translated feeling, but a feeling is such a useless term, if you want to be precise, uh, that uh, this is only misleading. Yeah. Important here, this is neither an emotion nor is it a, f a bodily sensation. That second channel is about the degree of subjective pleasure experienced with any moment of experience. Yeah. Greek work hedone, from pleasure, is a little technical but it actually hits the mark. It is exactly that. There are basically three types of these. There's pleasant ones, there's unpleasant ones, and there's ones that are not strong enough to lean either way. Um, so that's the second channel, the, uh, the, the, the dimension of the pleasurable or displeasurableness of my current experience. The third channel is about impulses, it's about emotion, it's about the volitional dimension in my experience. Big one. It's called Chittanupasana or um, the practices associated with them are called Chittanupasana. The fourth one is about the content of my experience, the cognitive and discursive content of my experience. It's the objects of my experience, not the states, not, not the flavor, but the the actual object, so the thought, the image, and the individual disc discursive notion. Um, there's a whole gamut of exercises associated with that, which right now I'm not interested in. Right now I'm just interested in establishing these Satipatthanas as a map of human experience. There aren't that many maps in Buddhism about human experience. Satipatthana is one of them. So the raw material for these four 
areas in which we are encouraged to develop mindfulness are somatic, they are hedonic, they are affective, and they are cognitive. Very simple. This is not difficult. Now imagine you don't get these things separated. If you have any event in your experience, it will always have all four of those aspects. You may not be aware of this immediately, but um, if you have an apple in your hand, and you don't just get its color. When you get an apple, you get a color, you get a texture, you get weight, um, you get size, you get sweetness. If you have any genuine apple, you get all these things are, are in that apple. You never just get the skin alone, yeah? or the color alone, or the sweetness alone. If this is a genuine apple, it has gonna, it's gonna display all these features. So sometimes it makes sense to talk about the color of apples, or the size of apples, or the respective sourness or sweetness of apples. It makes a lot of sense to distinguish them according to this. But any genuine apple will have all of these qualities. Make sense? It's not, it's not uh, rocket science, is it? The Satipatthanas are exactly the same. So think of Satipatthanas being something like TV channels. They're broadcasting all the time, but you can choose on which channel you're actually surfing, what you're actually watching. Now, uh, we have some habits. Uh, our Sati, our attentional focus, actually decides more or less on which channel we are. You know? Habitually, we, we really like what's happening in channel two, you know, the pleasure-displeasure bit. That really is a powerful governing force in our attentional um, economy. But actually what we most often do is we go to channel four. That's where the story goes. You know? That's where the me comes in. That's where the narrative is running. So most of us, most of the time, are on channel four. If you don't train your mind, you keep defaulting to channel four. You know? Even if you enjoy something, the enjoyment lasts very, sh very brief. And then you start thinking about it, with whom you enjoyed something similar last time, or whether you will get it again tomorrow, or how much it will have cost, or you want to share it with somebody. Yeah? I find that myself. It's just lovely sunset, and you think, oh, I only wish she saw this. You know, It's a very natural thought. Yeah. I am leaving the sunset and I'm starting to think of somebody who is not here, whom I would like that she was here and then I could tell her or share the sunset. So that's a clear shift from channel two to channel four. So most of us, most of the time, are spending time on channel four. The problem is on channel four, things are happening rather fast and we, despite our fixation on stories and narrative and all this, we're not actually very happy there. We're not very happy as thinkers. You may have heard of this uh, quite astounding uh, few tests the Boston Globe was speaking of, I think two years ago, not too far from here, if I remember right, there was research on people. They were asked to sit 15 minutes in a chair, not even to meditate, just sit in a chair and think whatever they liked completely free to think anything they liked, but they were not allowed to play with their smartphones, they were not allowed to stand up and do things. Um, and then they were introduced to a little device which would give them electric hits. 
these hits were harmless but unpleasant and they were said they could use this instrument if they wanted that was there that was the only thing they were allowed to do if they were did not feel okay just thinking something of their choice for 15 minutes and um, they were given to try how this felt and it was unpleasant they were asked if i recall properly whether if they had money whether they would pay money to not be inflicted these electric stimulation and i forgot what percentage said that they would give money to not get this stimulation and what turned out to be that uh, a sizable number of people this test was done with uh, two-thirds of the men basically ended up using this device on themselves because they felt obviously sitting in a chair and thinking something of your liking was less pleasant than stimulating yourself with an electric shock that you knew was going to be decidedly unpleasant you had tried out you know one guy actually used to sing 90 times the women were still one third a good third of the women were also into this so pain thinking channel four seems to be however obsessed we are with that stuff and habituated and hypnotized by it it doesn't seem to actually render us terribly happy. Yeah? Remember, these people weren't even asked to meditate or think nice thoughts. They could be just thinking their ugly thoughts if they wanted, but even that didn't seem to be so attractive that it kept two-thirds from the men and one-third of the women from actually using something they knew was going to be painful and was actually physically painful. Now, this says something about thinking, isn't it? So, for a meditation practitioner, that means much of what we learn when we do Satipatthana practices, we learn to switch channels from channel 4 to channel 1. Because channel 1, anything somatic, uh, is uh, crucial for us to be in the present moment, the body as the guarantor that we're actually dealing with the present moment because you've realized that you never get tomorrow's knee pains isn't it or yesterday's migraines when you deal with the body whether it be pleasurable or whether it be painful you always deal with present tense experience body only exists now yeah. there is no tomorrow body and there is no yesterday body even if you recall yesterday body, this arises now. Yeah. Even if you apprehend or anticipate tomorrow body, uh, this happens now. So if you associate your attentional focus with a bodily process, you have the guarantee that you're in the present moment. A guarantee you cannot have when you're on channel 4. Because what you think may never have happened. It may never happen. It may be utter fantasy. It may be totally delusional. Uh, it is very likely different than you remember it. Uh, you may not have been terribly mindful when it happened in the first place. That will not have made your perception very accurate. The duration between the actual event and the recall will not have sharpened your accuracy. And the fogginess in which you try to recall it will make matters even worse. Yeah. So the Buddhist insistence 
on focusing awareness, stabilizing attentional focus on the body, and that's Buddhist traditions across the board, see this as the safest way to make sure that we actually attend to the present moment. Because only the present moment is the, is a, is po enables us to truly understand something, to truly learn something, to truly participate in something, to truly enjoy something, to truly be compassionate. You know. So the more we are not in that present moment, the more we miss out on the stuff we basically long for. If we spend most of our attentional focus, and remember, attention is finite, it is limited. We have uh, not eternally time, we, we are mortal, and our attention capacity is not unlimited. There is only so much that our system can take up. If that is clogged up with games in Channel 4, past games or future games. Anecdotal evidence has it that if I'm young, I'm spending more time fantasizing about the future. And as I'm getting older, I'm spending more time reminiscing and remembering the past. The more I am not in that present moment, the less likely it is that I can truly enjoy, truly learn, truly participate, truly love, truly be compassionate, truly transform. Transcendence is only possible for things I have truly arrived at. Yeah. If I want to transform patterns in my mind, I need to arrive at them. Simply deflecting, denying, distracting <laughs> is not going to make this transformed. Yeah. So for me to be able to grow, to participate, to enjoy, to understand, to empathetically connect, I need to be here in the present moment. That's not a tiny little dot. I'm not speaking of a now. You know? Now is a Buddhist fantasy. There is no now, to be honest with you. This is a kind of pie-in-the-sky fantasy. Um, de depending on how uh, mindful you are, now is a much larger or a much smaller segment. But think of now not as something where you can just move in and nothing bad will ever happen. Yeah? This is a sort of Buddhist fantasy. Think of the present moment as a, as a dexterous. Um, well, think of it. Think of the past as a huge mountain range, and then you have a deep, deep, deep gorge. And then at the other side, you have another mountain range called the future. And the present moment is a little bridge between the two. The idea of a now at the bottom of the gorge is a little fantasy. Any moment in that now is constructed. You know, there is no now that is not constructed. You know, we construct now by our previous experiences, by our needs, by the sharpness of our senses, by the degree of spaciousness and samadhi. So the present moment is not a safe place. It's simply the only place where transformation can take place, where I can get a foot in, where I can have a say, where I can become someone else. So the more time we spend there, skillfully, the better our chances are that we can learn, grow, flourish. So Buddhist meditation traditions, the Satipatthana particular, teaches and encourages and help us to bring back attention that is lost in channel 4 to channel 1. That's the stage we're in. That's what we're doing today. 
been doing, that's what we'll be doing tomorrow. So, enough of map making tonight. Thank you for your attention. I'd love to end in this. Maybe a little quote uh, from a, a little quote from a, an old tradition. Uh, a very early attempt at a definition and the distinction between mindfulness and attention. A, dif uh, a distinction we which we'll have to spend a little more time on. What is attention? Manasikara. It is the mental tenacity. Its function consists of keeping the mind on the object. What is mindfulness? Sati. It is the non-forgetting by the mind with regard to the object experienced. Its function is non-distraction. These are texts from the 3rd century uh, AD and uh, a first defin definitory attempt from the um, Abhidharma tradition. Interesting, uh, they have a very different flavor than the images I have given you. I read them again. What is mindfulness? Smriti. It is the non-forgetting by the mind with regard to the object experienced. Its function is non-distraction. What is attention? Manasikara. It is the mental tenacity. Its function consists of keeping the mind on the object. My uh, friend John sometimes refers to mindfulness as the recollection of the present moment. I like this phrase. Yeah. I uh, personally think of mindfulness as a type of intelligent relationship to one's experience. An attuned, embodied, attentional relationship to my own experience. Yeah. We all are at least attentive. We're not necessarily mindful, but all of us are attentive. But we are attentive in episodic and in topical ways. And the task seems to be, at this early stage of our retreat, to come from episodic, attentional moments to an embodied, fluid and um, established mindfulness. Yeah? Enough for tonight. Thank you. Good. Um, please take a stretch. We are going to do some walking. Yeah.